we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. You guys always bring me the very best violence. No relationship. No emotion. Just sex. Everybody and welcome to another exciting episode of Gratuitous Sex and Violence, the show where we pray to the demons of filmmaking and they reward us with the lascivious pleasures of sex and violence. Mmm, tasty. <laughs> my name is Orlando and joining me as usual is my roommate, guest and co-host Ned Say. Hello, Ned. Hello, Ned. Hello, Orlando. Hi. Hi, every one of you. (laughs) Uh, Doing pretty good, you know? Just uh, keeping it social, keeping it distant. Good plan. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. That's the best we all can do. (laughs) It is the best. It's the best I got. Yeah. Keep safe. Indeed. So, tonight... We're watching another exciting movie, going back to horror, that old staple of gore and Mm -hmm. violence and sex. Mm -hmm. Tonight's film is Hellraiser. Hellraiser. A 1987 British horror film written and directed by Clive Barker. It's based on Clive Barker's novella, The Hellbound Heart of which uh, I have a copy right here in my hand. Oh, super cool. Y'all at home can't see this, but I'm showing Ned right now that I have indeed a copy of The Hellbound Heart. It's a nice it's a nice cover. Yeah, it's a it's a great little book. As you can see, it's super short. You can read it in a couple of hours. And Clive Barker adapted his own novel for to make a movie. This is his directorial debut. The story focuses on a mystical puzzle box and the horror it wreaks on a family that is unfortunate enough to come across it. Have you ever seen this movie, Ned? Uh, I have not seen the movie. Now, just to confirm, on mm-hmm. like the box art for this film, um, it, the box art, or at least the as far as the VHSs or whatever when it came out was concerned it's got like a dude with like pins in his face and all that stuff right and i'm seeing the pins in the in the novel i will say the novel's um the novel's cover looks way cooler but i just i have I have vivid memories of, like, you know, the days of the video rental store. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'll just, like, walk up and down the aisles. And, you know, there will be some movies that I'll just see the covers of. Um, right. Showgirls, for yeah, instance. Yeah, that was a the very I remember prominent... we talked about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, the other uh, cover that is very vivid in my memory is the Hellraiser cover mm-hmm. of the guy with the pins in the face. So... Um, I just remember being like, wow, that looks really disturbing mm-hmm. and like a movie that I will probably never, ever see in my life. And, and here uh, we are. And here we are <laughs> uh, just just spitting in the face of all that uh, fear and anxiety. So I'm a little apprehensive about today because like seriously, that shit that shit put some real uh, r- really rustled my jimmies as it so were. So you are coming to this movie pre-traumatized. A little bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm coming. I, I'm, I'm already kind of in a bit of a in a bit of a child state of of fear and anticipation now so. this is an 80s horror movie though 
So it'll maybe not be <laughs> as bad as all that. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. I have um, seen this movie quite often. Like I said, I have the book. The book is, I mean, Clive Barker is one of my favorite horror authors. Yeah. Um, the name sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. He's kind of a, kind of a, in, a an institution unto himself. Right, right. There's like, uh, there's Stephen King, Dean Koontz, and Clive Barker. Those are like the big three, like horror masters I'm, in, in literature, I would say. Modern literature. All right. I can deal with that. So, but uh, Clive Barker's work is known for being very visceral and being very heavy on, like, sexual imagery. And, um, and yeah, so I'm excited to watch the movie and then discuss it. Are you yeah. ready? Yeah, Are you I mean, ready to watch I, I like I like visceral things and I like sexually visual things. So oh, uh, okay. I guess I guess well, <laughs> then this is the perfect show for you, my I friend. Guess, indeed. <laughs> All right, guys. So we're gonna break and watch uh, Hellraiser, and then we're gonna come back and play some trivia and discuss the movie at length. If you guys at home want to play along. Hellraiser is available on Amazon Prime. It's also available on Hoopla and Shudder. Um, tonight we're watching it on Amazon Prime. So we're going to break right now and watch the movie. And then we'll be back in a second and discuss it. So we'll see y'all on the other side. Lord help me. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. You guys always bring me the very best violence. No relationship, no emotion, just sex. Welcome back. We've just seen Hellraiser. Oh my God, yes we did. So did it live up to your most traumatizing expectations? Ah! (laughs) Oh my God. Oh my god! Orlando! First reactions. <laughs> that you just heard them. Um it was good. It was really good. I really liked it. Mm. Um I I'm like trying to search my memory banks. I think this may be like the most art housey of horror films that I've seen yet, I feel really? like. It's very... There's there's a very sort of... It, it makes sense that it's his directorial debut, and mm-hmm. there's something very lean about the script that I found very interesting about just sort of how sparse the writing is in this I'm, movie. In, and, I mean, the book, the novel is really sparse well, also. Well, exactly, it's yeah. Such it's such a, a short very, book. It's a very short book. But but at the same time, it's that it's there's there's this kind of sparseness to, like, the ins and outs of the story but it's very dense yeah it's very there's a lot of subtext yeah there's a yeah there's a lot of subtext going on it feels like it really um i think we talked a, a quite a bit a, a few times at least with other horror films that we watched about just like the surrealism there's oh, a yeah. lot of almost like uh terrence malikian oh, hmm. things uh that i saw going on especially just like the image of the blooming flower in the hospital yeah. that kind of made me think "Ooh, is this like horrors Ter- terrence malik <laughs> um probably not because i don't know that much about horror he's or only ter- directed or- three films well, there you go. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but this kid's going places. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's uh, so. So I was uh, 
struck by we'd we'd uh, seen society and right. we'd talked a bit about like the um the design mm-hmm. of the horrors of that film mm-hmm. and so this film was definitely i think like an interesting sort of flip side to like that certainly yes it 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 definitely shows that this was a film from the 80s right. and you know definitely you do kind of see some of the seams there as far as you know the special effects of the day but like you know some of those technical limitations aside like mm-hmm. this creature design was all fucking disturbing it oh, was yeah. just all really Really, really disturbing imagery, really um, creepy monsters Mm -hmm. um, that like even when you're looking at them and you see them in their full glory. um, Yeah, really, really disturbing imagery. Um, Really cool stuff going on. Uh, Also, like, um, you know, to kind of revisit the idea of horror as um, uh, a punishment for sexual transgression. And this one is like a really interesting take on that and on and on the idea of like this, the the relentless pursuit of pleasure at all costs. And and the whole movie is kind of about reaping those consequences, but it does it in a way that's not necessarily like it. It doesn't necessarily come from like a moralizing place. It's much more. It's much more personal and it's much more about just this kind of very sort of insidious the human nature. Yeah, like this sort of insidious codependent relationship kind of um Well we're gonna discuss so, so those that so, yeah, in so way a lot, more detail. Yeah, there's a lot yeah, that's a that's a thing. It's really dense, so it's like it's hard for me to know where to begin. Right, but right. like there's a lot. We're gonna get back to that because that is definitely like the predominant theme of the movie. Yeah. Uh, and and this is a perfect movie for a podcast named Gratuitous Sex and Violence because the sex and violence are like one in the same in this yeah. movie. Yeah, um, but pleasure um, and pain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, originally Barker wanted to name the movie after the novel. The novel's name is, of course, again, The Hellbound Heart. The film's producer thought that that title sounded like a romance. So that's why they decided to go with a different title. I actually like the title, The Hellbound Heart. I think that it evokes uh, a, an image. It feels like an Edgar Allan Poe title, you know, yeah. Telltale Heart, Hellbound Heart, which I'm sure is what Clive Barker was going for yeah. the first time. So after Barker has this like really dark, twisted sense of humor, which you actually, if you read a lot of his work, you you become insanely familiar with. And um, when they were searching or shopping other titles, he came up we suggested the title sadomasochists from beyond the grave, (laughs) (laughs) but it was rejected because it was overtly sexual. Mm -hmm. Um, They ultimately opened up the floor to the production team to offer their own suggestions, which prompted a 60 year old female crew member to offer up her suggestion, which was what a woman will do for a good fuck. <laughs> that one was also rejected. That's incredible. I think that should have been the film. That title. should have been the title. Oh my god! What? Oh my and, god! Uh, and then so they went good. with Hellraiser. Uh, Barker only directed three <laughs> movies. Uh, directed uh, this one, Nightbreed, and Lord of Illusions. He quickly realized that he was out of his depth in the world of directing and went back to his first love writing. Um, but this one has a really passionate cult following. The other two movies, not so much. This one is his best effort. 
And he spoke fondly about, you know, his filming of this movie. He, he stated that there was an unalloyed fondness and that the cast treated him, uh, his, the cast treated his ineptitudes very kindly and the crew were no less forgiving. Um, Barker admitted his own no- uh, lack of knowledge on filmmaking, stating that he didn't know the difference between a 10 millimeter lens and a 35 millimeter lens. He said, and I quote, if you'd shown me a plate of spaghetti and said that was a lens, I might have believed you. <laughs> uh, after filming, an interesting tidbit, the, the distribution house, New World Productions, convinced Barker to relocate the story to the U.S., even though the movie quite clearly from the locations takes place in London. It was filmed in London, but they relocated the story to the U.S., which required overdubbing of a lot of the cast and crew uh, of the cast members. So uh, some of the actors were American, but I think like half of them or a little over half were British. And those were all overdubbed with American actors. Well, uh, OK. And, and maybe this I, I don't know if this is something that will get touched on in trivia, but mm-hmm. like there was definitely a huge inconsistency between um, uh, Julie's accent in, like, the flashback sequences. Julia's? And Julia's, yeah. Um, like, I remember being like, oh, she definitely has an American accent in, like, the flashbacks with Frank, but then has a British accent for the rest of the movie. And, and she is a British actress, so yeah. it would make... The British accent was her own accent. Yeah, but... Um, so, yeah, that definitely... Yeah, that, that was a weird little inconsistency. I wasn't sure if there was, like, an explanation for it in the film. Yeah, the explanation the is they, they overdubbed a lot yeah. of it. <laughs> so. so let's Guess play some should. trivia. You brought up trivia. Let's play some trivia. Are you ready for us to play some Hellraiser trivia? <laughs> I don't know. Orlando. <laughs> uh, let's see how much of this information. Well, yeah, what's going to be more traumatizing, this fucking movie or the trivia to follow? It was surprisingly hard to come up with trivia for this movie. Not because, like, in other instances where it's been hard because there's no subtext. I feel like because everything in this movie is subtext. It's like the, yeah. the opposite problem. Yeah. So I was trying to pick out things that were like, okay, yeah. what's we, a good trivia question that's not like too obvious, but also not too esoteric. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like, if, I feel like, uh, yeah, if, if you, if you say, uh, no, the answer is actually this, um, I will probably very easily be able to say, but is it really? <laughs> so, um, let's see how often I can pull that card. All right, here we go. Question number one. Okay. Uh, starting you off nice and easy. As always, the, this quiz is five questions and a bonus, and it goes in order from least difficult to most difficult. And um, and so far that has borne itself out, I think, the last few episodes. So I, I hope so. Been, I try my been, best. You've been doing good. You've been doing good. You've All been right. stumping me. The grand prize is bragging rights, so let's see if you get your bragging rights tonight. I am hungry for some bragging rights. Question number one. All right. What question does the mysterious, bizarre dealer not bizarre but bazaar b-a-z-a-a-r uh-huh what question does the mysterious bizarre dealer ask each person who inquires about the puzzle box uh, the question and thank goodness the movie ended with it a nice <laughs> little bookend um uh, asks what's your pleasure What's your pleasure, sir? <laughs> I I actually dig that imagery a lot. It's it. I mean, you know, by now you know my my movie likes. You know, I like horror and I like adventure movies, and I like things in in where you can see like a cross pollination of genre tropes. Yeah, and the whole idea of like someone 
from the Western world going to an Eastern marketplace and acquiring a magical object is very much rooted not only in horror traditions, but in adventure traditions. Yeah, yeah. And so that whole imagery of like the, the mysterious marketplace and then the guy saying, what's your pleasure, sir? It just invokes like a very adventuresome quality yeah, to it. Yeah, yeah, there was definitely a, a, a bit of a King Solomon's mind right? to it. So um, <laughs> I, I appreciated that. Um, what, what would... What would you do if you encountered like a mysterious box in a marketplace? Would you be so? Well, keen now that to- I've seen this fucking movie, <laughs> hightail it the hell out of there. How bad um, can it be? How bad can it be? Oh my god! <laughs> All right, here we go. Question number two. Yeah. How many men do we see Julia bring home to Frank? see her bring three. Three men. That's correct. Rule of threes. Yeah, that's correct. It's always helpful. Um, I I was thinking that that was going to be an easy one, but you might be stumped because he ultimately kills four, but one of them is Larry. Well, yeah, exactly. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely when it comes to, like, deaths, get... Yeah, the the question of deaths and uh, how many people died in this movie, I think would be a, was it really, though? (laughs) Now, one of the interesting things about the story, both the book and the movie, is that the first half of it is definitely Julia's story. You're kind of primed to believe that this is her journey. And so at the beginning, you're kind of sympathetic to her, and then she delves deeper and deeper into into her own evil and then it becomes Kirsty's story yeah. who is the ultimate protagonist um so I, I thought that I I really dig that in in the way that the story is told a little bit yeah I mean I think uh, it it didn't yeah I guess there there didn't really feel like there was that much fleshing out of her character like a little right. bit like they certainly you know, Definitely with the relationship yeah, yeah, between yeah, her and Frank. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, they don't. They don't. They don't shortchange um, Kirsty's right. establishment. Or oh, you mean like Kirsty? Yeah, yeah, okay. Kirsty. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Sorry if I That's, mixed yeah. up the names, but uh, um, yeah, no. In the first half of the movie, uh, yeah, definitely it, it felt like yeah, Kirsty was much more on the periphery. Right. And so um, to to have it make that shift and sort of make it her story, it, it, that that was I think maybe one of the things that wasn't. Yeah, wasn't as neatly, wasn't mm-hmm. as neatly handled from mm-hmm. a filmmaking perspective, mm-hmm. and, and and I feel and and I almost feel like it, it. While you can definitely sort of see there is a bit of a halfway point where the focus is more on Kirsty, it it did. It, it, I don't know. I, I feel like it is kind of Julia's movie, kind of through and through. I mean, it's definitely a sort of a. a I I sort of saw it as a, a descent into madness type right. situation, and mm-hmm. you know the. I mean it. You know, it just she you know, does drive she, the movie. Yeah, she definitely drives the movie. Um, she she dies before the big climax, so it so it can't really be her movie. She reaps by that her point, the rewards but, of her, you um, know, toiling. But yeah, definitely, definitely a descent into madness. The sure. next question is also about Julia. Yeah, what item does Julia take as a memento of her time together with Frank? Uh, she takes. 
Uh, it's a, a photo of Frank and another one of his lovers, whom she then subsequently tears off the photo. Correct, a picture of Frank. Now, Frank was quite the amateur pornographer last <laughs> week. Oh, yeah, quite, uh, I mean, quite, Frank, quite the hedonist. Um, um, I mean, yes, yeah, totally. Very much so. Just total pursuit of just... yeah. Pleasure. <laughs> yeah, it was very interesting, kind of those beginning scenes where um, it's so clear how not about this new living situation Julia is, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and uh, her, uh, you know, poor Larry poor is Larry. working overtime uh, to try to get her to buy into this thing, and then lo and behold, she finds these pictures of Frank awakens ancient feelings. Yeah, and 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 and, and obviously they go into more depth about explaining that was more her relationship with Frank, but my initial imp- my, my initial impression <laughs> uh-huh. was just she was like, oh, some some nice kinky shit was going right. on here. I guess we can stick around. Add it to my collection. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, obviously, obviously it runs a little deeper than that, but... Uh, Alright, you're doing great. You've yeah. got three for three. Alright. Here we go. Question number four. Now we're trying to get a little harder here with these questions. Certainly. We're starting to ask more specific things right now. Oh no, not specifics. What are the names of the extra dimensional beings who are obsessed with testing the limits of pleasure and pain? Oh, the oh, and I I looked at the closing credits for the names of the creatures, and so um collectively I, the names yeah 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 the yeah yeah not not the individual names right. don't worry but um uh, the they are the uh, the 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 centibites no 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 the sen sen seb seb you're Sebat- so close. You're so close. Shit. Okay. But again, esoteric stuff here. Yes, very esoteric. Uh, the Cenobites. The Cenobites. <laughs> I just, I just plopped a T. You, you in put a there. T into there. But is it really though? But is it really the Cenobites? Is it really? <laughs> is it really the Cenobites? Um, I have to say, like, <laughs> there's, uh, their, their, their role in the story kind of. Um, Gives it a bit of a sci-fi yeah, element a little bit. to it. Mm-hmm. There's definitely like the, especially just kind of like the way they are. This kind of like ensemble that are always kind of together. I was definitely and, and and the way uh, the 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 lead one, the one with all the pins, mm-hmm. um, was very much like. We we explore the limits of, and I was pretty sure he was going to say the universe, the galaxy uh, of of sensation. Oh, okay, great. So we're back. Well, they are extra dimensional. But, so. but yeah, they're extra dimensional, and um, so yeah, I thought that was there. that was kind of interesting. Yeah, the, just just a just a just a dash of sci-fi again. That your, whole idea of uh, of multiple genres coming together to yeah. form this. Yeah, it's very because there's a lot of dark fantasy in this, obviously, as well. Yes. Um, so. All right, so question number five. All right. Uh, I'm not sure if this is the hardest question, but it happens really early in the movie, so it's one of those, if you didn't catch it, you might have missed it. All right. How long has it been since Larry's been back home? Ooh. Nice specificity. Um, how long has it been since Larry's been back home? Yeah, when they first walk into the house, he actually says it. He says, I haven't been home in blank years. Uh, um... 20 years? 
It's a guess. It's not based on. The answer is 10 years. God damn it. 10 years. So you you missed... Uh, but is it really, though? But is it really okay. 10 years? So you missed... Rule of threes. I'm letting that one go. You missed <laughs> one and a half because you got Cento bites. I mean, that's not yes, far off. I, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. Look. All right. Look, the first few quizzes, yes, I'm partial credit here and there, but like, look, I got to get in the game. All right, okay? all right. So you missed okay. two questions. Yeah, I fucked it up. Let's be real. But, but there's you, a bonus. Here comes the bonus. Yes. Now, the bonus uh, is not necessarily about the movie specifically, but about the movie and the whole environment of pop culture surrounding the movie. Okay. Um, each Cenobite acquired a distinct nickname based solely on their appearance, the way they looked. Although they are never mentioned by name in the film, what is the nickname given to the lead Cenobite? Um... So, so this is a nickname. Was this a nickname that was, if you don't mind my asking, was it a nickname that was sort of like generally accepted by Clive Barker and by the other filmmakers? All other iterations, all other iterations in this universe, name name him as this. Okay. Because it became quite popular after this movie. Okay. To name to call him that. He's no. He is known. The character is known by this name. And I, oh, mm. it's almost too obvious. I know, I know. That's a thing. <laughs> it's uh, based on it, his appearance. Uh, well, is it is it uh, Mr. Pencushion Head? No, <laughs> not too, not that far into uh, it. Not, yeah, I'm just saying. No, it's like, but it's kind of something like that. Not, not he's not a dog. He's a monster. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously. <laughs> Come here, Mr. Pencushion Head. Okay, okay. Hang on, I'm gonna take one more try. All right, all right. This. But um, Spike Head. Close. Okay. Give up. Um. Uh. Uh. Pinhead. Yes. There we go. It's Pinhead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I apologize to everybody who's listening to this, who is who is slamming their head against it's whatever whatever against whatever fucking wall. You've is even nearby. said the guy with the pins multiple times. Yeah, the guy with the pins multiple times. Is it pin cushion head? It's obviously not pin cushion head. Okay, it's spike head. It's pointy head. No, it's, it's fucking pinhead. Pin okay. In the, Thank God. In the book, the lead Cenobite, who is not given a specific name either, he's just known as the priest. Yeah. Um, he has nails in his head, <gasps> not actual pins. Okay. But uh, the nails prove to be really difficult to work with with the makeup. So they they're they're like thicker, basically. Yeah. Or, so they yeah. put like what looks like acupuncture needles, basically a, yeah. a little bit thicker than acupuncture, but essentially that's what it looks like all yeah. over his face and a grid like pattern. Now, an interesting thing about that, the makeup took six hours and the actor, Doug Bradley, who, who by the way, he plays Pinhead in this and all the other sequels of, of Hellraiser. I think there's like nine movies total. Really? Yeah. Jesus the last, Christ. The last few which were released directly to, to video. I should think. Um, but he became so good at applying the pins on his own that he actually gets credit as a makeup assistant in subsequent films. Wow. Well, that's good. Um, mm. I hope he, hope he landed himself an extra little pay month for that as well. I know, right? Yeah. All right. So that was the trivia. Okay. So 
I got like uh, four, four out of six. It's not mm-hmm. bad, right? Now, ha- haven't been disappointed in how his previous adapted works fared on screen. Clive Barker attempted to direct this movie himself. As we've talked, this is his first one. And you can you can really see... Uh, be, I feel like the movie is good. Now, don't get me wrong. And I know that you have acknowledged it's a good movie. But you can clearly see that it is the work of a first-time or a, a novice director. Yeah, I would definitely say that. I would say it's definitely like a... It's it's a it's a bold first it's a bold first outing yeah for sure like it definitely has a lot of specificity to like a very specific like mood that he was going for right. um, you know yeah there was there were definitely you know some seams showing both as far as like the effects were concerned and um, we talked a bit about like the dubbing and the dubbing and- but even like I think I think in like a direct the direction too because I feel that it, it helps him of course that he's adapting his own work so he he knows what the vision is yeah and if anything, the the vision in this movie is pretty strong. Yeah. But I feel like there are some scenes, the way they're blocked and executed, where he didn't quite go as tense-inducing and suspenseful as he could have gone with it. Hmm. Like, I feel like a lot of the directing is very rudimentary. And again, it's because yeah. he doesn't have any experience. He doesn't know how to build suspense and all that. And the fact that it came out as good as it did is, I think, a testament to his power, to the power of imagination, his imagination, his story. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I mean, I would definitely say that for me personally, I was I was pretty riveted, like, yeah. from beginning to end. And mm-hmm. I think that, like, there were definitely many points through the film where I was, like, on the edge of my seat. Really? Um, yeah, certainly. Uh, yeah, so I, I think um, it works very well. I'm not, no, don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, I mean, I'm just I, saying I think, maybe it's not as scary as it could have well, been. Well, <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think a, a big part of what riveted me about it was not necessarily that I was always on the edge of my seat. Like, I don't think I was, but, um, uh, but uh, it was kind of just, there was something about, just sort of the way it, uh, the way it kind of, you know, the way it, it, it kind of adopted that sort of like dreamlike mm, way it's very of, dreamlike, of, yeah. uh, of, you know, kind of, you know, foreshadowing different things right. here and there, or a cutting away to, mm-hmm. you know, different bits of imagery and stuff like that, that just kind of, it really made me just sort of constantly be like, what the? fuck is going on it makes you Um, pay attention so yeah definitely it definitely kept my attention and the mood of it is is pretty great and it's helped along by the score which i think is pretty strong oh my god yeah yeah the score is gorgeous now clive barker originally wanted the electronic music group coil to perform the music for the film but that was rejected by the production company um so the film editor suggested christopher young and Christopher Young has actually scored other horror movies as well. He scored films like Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, and Invaders from Mars. And yeah, I feel like like the 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 theme with the music box and uh, is is beautiful. Yeah. Um a lot of the of even though you, what you're seeing is like really fucked up, it almost he almost 
gave it like a romantic quality. Yeah, I, I kind of I, I appreciated that the film really sort of did like, you know, the simple uh, title sequence of mm-hmm. just like that. It opens with just like, you know, showing the title right. um, Clive Barker's Hellraiser mm-hmm. and, and really just goes through all those. And, and so, yeah, having that kind of like opening suite. um definitely gave it a kind of a yeah did give it kind of an old time romantic feel and i think especially the way the whole story does hinge on this relationship mm-hmm. between uh julia and uh frank and frank um it, yeah yeah it definitely it's 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 like the most twisted fucked up like sort of old classic romantic story right. in, in a way. It gives it a very gothic feel. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um so yeah, I really liked that. I think it definitely suited the mood. I'm 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 uh, so you said it was like an electric It was supposed thing? to be uh, composed by electric music group Coil. Yeah, like that's the thing. I I don't I can't think, see it. Yeah, I I I think that would not have yeah, it would not have been nearly as strong mm-hmm. if, if it was like a synthesized right. score. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think it, yeah, having that classic style really worked for it and, and heightened it. Let's go right into the first of our GSV segments, which is called shot, 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 How many killings? How many deaths? But in this really, movie? Um, how many well, real deaths oh, in this movie? Okay, well, um, would we would we say Frank dies by the end of the movie? Like that one has a question mark. Yeah, that one. I think a he's question. dragged back to the other dimension okay. to be tortured for all eternity again. Okay, I think that that's. Yeah, his that, I guess that makes sense. I mean, yeah, because it kind of it kind of explodes. There's like a last shot, like as the things are pulling at him, and then the door closes right before the door. Right, closes, you but see. it's established at the beginning that Frank's body's in bits and pieces everywhere. Anyway, yeah, he's just exactly. like fully conscious, experiencing all of this. Right. Um. So uh, we got the three. Got the three dudes. The three caballeros. Um, we've got uh, Julia who dies. Um. Larry does die. Mm-hmm. Um. The homeless man turned into a dragon. So no, not I a don't death. think he died. No. I don't think that's a death. It's, um, it's just those five. Also, that was weird. That was a little weird. At the <laughs> it's end of very the movie. weird. It's one of the um, weirder parts of the movie. Yeah, but um, so yeah, that's five. Yeah, five not, not a lot of deaths, but very gratuitous. Very much yeah, gratuitous. They, but they, yeah, they they milk them for all they're worth. Um, ooh, uh, like the hammer scenes, the hammer deaths, the blows to the head of yeah, those poor blows, guys. Yeah, exactly. And like, yeah, that first guy who just like his jaw just But like, are they gets poor guys? Over. See, there's another question. Because well, these are lecherous actually, bastards. Yeah, they are actually all pretty um yeah. The Especially first, the first one. The yeah, first the fir- one. yeah, the first guy was like, who's like Ugh, kinda has was, rapey vibes. Really, going really on. disturbing right. the way he the way he uh yeah, that line that he had about you're not going to change your mind, are you? Mm-hmm. Um, and one, especially because like he kind of like he's sort of like playing the sort of like soft game, like sort of you know like being he's laying all, it on pretty thick though. He's well, like yeah. you're the most gorgeous creature I've ever seen. I feel yeah, like I've known exactly. you all my life. Like saying yeah. you know those kind of things. Which, yeah, yeah. Or and then like or sort of like more at the beginning, like when he's at the bar, he's like, well, you know, we're right. both alone, and maybe right. we can drink together. But then like he does you know, try to once be he's in the room, he's like he he just immediately turns into this. Mm-hmm. Very entitled, awful type dude. I feel um, like the whole movie, though, is is kind of about, in a way, about 
what men expect from Julia. Yeah. Which is, uh, I mean, like, if we say that Julia is the driver, the primary driver of the story, it is kind of about her sexuality in a way and, and all that. But yeah. we'll, 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 we'll get in more into that in a second. Yeah, I, yeah. I want to talk about the actual quality of the violence. But that leads me to another point about who the real monsters are in this movie. Yeah. And I feel like that's a through line in a lot of Clive Barker's work. If you read a lot of his, his stories, they feature supernatural beings, but the beings themselves, even though they are horrific, are not the main monsters of the movie. Yeah, that's a thing. The monsters it, are very much of the human quality. Yeah, exactly. I found it really interesting that uh, a lot of the horror suspense had very much to do with... Um, Julia's impending murder of right. people, um, and all at the beckoning of Frank, mm-hmm. um, who who doesn't re- de- necessarily do much of his own dirty work. Like she, he just drains the afterwards. Yeah, she really accounts for most of the the legwork of yeah. actually murdering these guys, um, uh, the Cenobites. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they really do kind of have just this kind of more. They really feel like observers for the most yeah. part. They're very much like on the periphery. Right. And, and they only appear like at the beginning and at the end. Yeah. And they're, and yeah, there's a sort of like weird, like transcendent quality to them, just like the way that they are sort of just looking on. Um, uh, and it's weird because, like, obviously the Cenobites do, you know, unleash some massive fucking violence. Yeah. Like, they just. Do. In, terms of tearing people to literal we'll shreds. tear your soul apart yeah. um but uh but yeah the the suspense of this film is very much uh, centered on julia and her Ooh, her yeah <laughs> yeah being like manipulated do you think she was manipulated do you think she actually loves frank and that's why she does the murdering or um she's trying to accomplish something well it's interesting i mean i think uh it's the there's a there's a kind of a a sort of a power dynamic thing going on between them and and it's and it's clear that From the beginning and 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 so there's a very it's a very one-sided uh dynamic because it's clear that you know after they show the flashback of them like you know having sex for the first time Mm -hmm. i assume um the way he sort of just is very dismissive of her and she's the one who is then like sort of pleading with him to stay and telling him how she'll do anything for him yeah um and and then obviously in the meantime he clearly has all these other women he obviously doesn't care and he doesn't care yeah so so even in this like yeah he is definitely manipulating her and 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 boy the consequences that that are born out from it so yeah i would say it's it's not yeah it doesn't come from a it doesn't come from like a a depth of love i think it's like uh it's like uh there's she's trying to fill like a void that she has yeah exactly um i and it's interesting actually because frank sort of is the one who keeps talking about like how devoid uh larry is throughout right. the film um and the thing is like it's interesting because like larry is definitely 
you know, he's he's trying to, like, keep the family together and he's sort of, like, trying to, like, you know, have this household be, you know, he's, he's trying to, like, you know, yeah, like, you yeah, know, make... Larry is the Jerry uh, from Rick and Morty of oh, this movie. <laughs> yeah, a, a little bit, yeah. He, he does definitely have have some of those Jerry vibes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like, considering how much Frank talks about, like, oh, he's he's been dead inside his whole right. life. But, like... But it, it's clear that, like, that, like, it's Julia's character who's, who's, like, you know, so devoid of, like, a connection right. to the people in her life that she's, you know, able to be driven to these kinds of extremes. Yeah, um, and, she, and yeah. she has, like, an aloofness from the beginning. Yeah, you know? She's yeah. not very connected to everybody around her. Yeah. Um, like, and even, like, at the dinner party, she excuses herself. She's not really into, like, yeah. being around other people. Yeah. And and certainly, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that Larry is entirely blameless. He His character definitely does have, like, one or two, you know, issues right. as well. Um, but, uh, but, yeah. Um, she, yeah, I think she is, it's more just that she, she has, yeah, she does have something fundamentally missing. Yeah. That is. Yeah. And Julie and Frank are the main, like the, the real monsters of the movie. I find what they do in the film to be much more disturbing and scary than what the Cenobites are doing. Yeah. Because I feel like the Cenobites, like you choose that path. I feel like, you know, when you, when you solve the, the box, you're signing a contract that that's what you're looking for. But the, yeah. but what Frank and Julia are doing, like they're, they're messing with innocent lives. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. a, like a little not, bit, not different. so much in Kirsty's case, but, but, but I agree with what you're saying. Right. That like, yeah, the act of doing the boxes yeah. and, and most people uh, will, would have sought it out mm-hmm. and at least have some knowledge of, of, of at least what the box promises. Right. But obviously it's, you know, be careful what you wish for type deal as well. Now you talked about the poor quality of the effects a little bit. I want to talk about that because especially about the, the effects at the end of the movie where we see a lot of like the, the cell painting, like when uh, the creatures light up and then, you know, blow up and stuff yeah. like that. <laughs> um, and Clive Barker has explained that due to a very limited budget, there was no money left to have the FX at the end professionally done after the primary filming. So he and what he, who he calls quote unquote, a Greek guy (laughs) animated those scenes by hand over a single weekend. Uh, Barker has also commented that he thinks the FX turned out very well considering the amount of alcohol the two consumed that weekend. Oh my God. (laughs) That is amazing. I have to say like just between like, just kind of how great the crew it sounds like mm-hmm. really was during the process and um Clive Barker's own sort of like you know <laughs> scrappiness humble. yeah he's, he's, <laughs> he's scrappy he's humble he you know is more than willing to uh, admit his own shortcomings um yeah I I'm I'm loving the story of the making of this film a lot. It's it's kind of there's something very heartwarming about yeah. it um yeah you know. uh, let's go into our Good next segment. Yeah. Next segment is called Boob Tube. Now, again, the violence and the sex are pretty intertwined in this movie. Yeah, that's that's a big part of the thematic. But obviously, the there's a lot of like themes like we're talking about, about sexual dissatisfaction, uh, exploring the limits of pleasure, 
suffering as pleasure. Yeah. Uh, and also like the weird religious connotations of pain and pleasure. Yeah. One. And it's interesting because almost in a way, um, the, the film opens with a lot of religious imagery right. in the house. That's kind of just like, you know, leftovers from, you know, the house's many years of just, you know, sitting in neglect. Larry basically. and Frank's mother, I believe, um, are, is, are the ones who had, who, who, is, is she's the one who had the exactly, religious yeah. imagery. Um, and, and it seems like, just kind of from my own first viewing experience, that it it seemed like the religious imagery was almost kind of a misdirect for the film. And that like, be that, that like you almost think that you're being set up for this kind of <clears throat> absolute moral quandary or this, uh, yeah, this idea that the film's going to like, you know, yeah, that this film's going to like tackle morality in a very sort of like straightforward way, mm -hmm. but it kind of doesn't. It instead, kind of it instead focuses almost entirely on the dynamic between uh frank and julia and not so much on like it's it's not it's not that you know she has sexual desires that's mm -hmm. the problem in this film right it's that she's sort of it's 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 more that that frank is just such a relentless pursuer of pleasure mm -hmm. and that he is willing to sacrifice anyone to continue to be able to have it right. and um, yeah so it's it's so yeah the the film really never the film never really dives that deep into the idea of like christian moral codes or anything mm -hmm. like that it's it's much more about about you know your your willingness to your 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 willingness to sell out anybody for for your own kind of well frank's yeah. last line as larry before he's torn apart is jesus wept good point yeah this is true this is true good call on that <laughs> um i do think that although it's not like you said it's not like a pervasive like it doesn't hit you on the head like yeah. a hammer no pun intended <laughs> um but I feel like there is a, real, a, a definite religious undercurrent to the movie, especially with the Cenobites. Uh, in fact, in the book, it goes into uh, more in depth of who they are. And it goes more in depth also about how Frank doesn't expect what the results of what opening the puzzle box brings him. Hmm. Because he wants to test the limits of pleasure but he thinks that it is going to be, you know, like sexual pleasure. Like maybe he's going to have like a harem of women, like something like that. Yeah. And instead it's these demons who are really obsessed with the intersection of pain and pleasure. To them, they're one and the same. And testing the limits of pleasure is testing the limits of pain. Um, in the book, they're described as theologians from a religious sect uh, known as the Order of the Gash. And they describe themselves as explorers in the further regions of experience, granting sadomasochistic pleasures to those who call about them. In the book, they're also ex described in more explicit sexual terms um, and with, with the descriptions uh, that they have, which I won't go into here because they're, they're already fucked up. But if you mm -hmm. guys want to read it, then pick up the book because it's, it's a really interesting read. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and also the fact that Pinhead in the book is, is known as the priest. Yeah. Like, That's, yeah. You know, there's, a, there's definitely like a, 
and you were even saying that they they seem like observers. I kind of like yeah, and, have and the connection of like almost like they're bit. dark angels. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I think you that's that's a good point. That is definitely a good point. I guess I I would concede that point. Um, that that yeah, the the and 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 the Cenobites are kind of this. Yeah, they are this sort of religion that. Frank pursues right. in a way too, mm-hmm. and and even the he, way like the ritual is with the candles and stuff. Yeah, and especially because Frank sort of just he, you know he, uh, you know it, it's it's clear that he is this this kind of wayward person, you know that uh, Larry's always talking about. Oh, yeah, he's, he's like probably in jail sheep. somewhere, mm-hmm. and um and uh, you know just kind of yeah this like deviant who who. Uh, um, looks for the next best thing, and and so uh, it's it's clear that Frank does end up uh, you know messing with powers beyond his comprehension. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so yeah yeah that's definitely fair play on the on the on the intersection between the religion and the horrors. Let's talk a little film. bit about Kirsty, um, who I know that you've said you've talked to her about her a little bit. How she doesn't really seem as well-developed, especially in the first half of the movie. But did you ultimately enjoy the character of Kirstie or no? Um, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, she was, she was fairly well-realized, um, even with kind of not having that much development. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, I liked that, um, yeah, certainly I think, you know, uh, a young teenager who, um, in her case in the story, she's kind of like, you know, she's, she's striking out on her own, um, you know, being very insistent Mm -hmm. on like having her own place. And so in most horror films, um, that person is going to be kind of like ripe for some sort of like exploitive sort of, uh, storyline, like that she's going to get swept up into some sort of weird sexual situation. And she doesn't really like, she's just, you know, a a lot of her, her, her character is, is, uh, somebody who, uh, who cares very deeply about her father and, uh, you know, talks with him very frankly about his relationship Mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, it's clear that she is she is somebody who like cares for him that like you know she'll call him in the middle of the right. night because she had a bad dream yeah. about him. Um, so yeah, I think she definitely is a is is a quite well realized uh, character. And um, even I think like her relationship with uh, her boyfriend, who I don't rem- I don't think that we ever get a name for him or I don't remember. The yeah, name there's not mu- yeah there's not much there, but but also it's like it's nice that it's not this kind of like. It's not this like weird. Tongue she doesn't depend on him either. Yeah, you know? exactly. she does the, everything on her own. Even at the end, when he tries to help, like she like waves him off and just like really takes down the Cenobites on her own. Yeah. Um. But but I do but I do think that even like that relationship is like the most wholesome relationship, sexual relationship of the movie. Yeah. It's it's a it's a more mature relationship certainly than the one between Frank and Julia. Because That's, even I think when whenever she wakes up from the bad dream to call her dad, like we see that he's sleeping on the floor. They're not even sleeping in the same bed together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, more, more of that uh, Christian morality, right? Exactly. There. So uh, she's yeah. the chaste one. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, uh, it's really interesting uh, that in the book, that this is one of the major changes. Now, generally, I'm one of those people who think that the books are books are better than movies. Yeah. Um, and I would say that the Hellbound Heart, the book as a whole is definitely better than the movie because I feel like it's scarier than the movie. Mm-hmm. It leads more to the imagination. Um, but one of the positive changes when it made the leap from book to film was the character of Kirsty. I think Okay, in the book, 
Kirsty is not a character. Uh, her name is Rory. Okay. And she's not Larry's daughter from a previous marriage. Rory is Larry's co-worker who is secretly in love with him. Hmm. Basically, everything else transpires pretty similarly to how it happens in the movie, except that it's coming from that perspective rather than the daughter perspective. And I feel like the daughter perspective was a much stronger choice. Yeah. So I actually like that Clive Barker made that change when he, when he changed the story for the film. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree with that. Um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah. Cause uh, otherwise like how, uh, yeah, to, to have it be like a coworker with a crush, it's like, would they really extend themselves that much and and put themselves into that kind of right. uh, danger? Especially considering Larry is in right. a relationship, and and also because I think like you know as far as like the themes of um, of like sexuality and and sort of um, like you know that like you know Frank's whole thing is that he is this very like you know, primal, mm-hmm. you know, sexually assertive person. Mm-hmm. And, and Larry has to stand in contrast right. to him that like, he's, he is not as viable of a lover uh, in any way. Right. And so, yeah, to have, to have, to have a major character be pining for mm-hmm. Larry would only, I think, muddle that contrast. And well. I can see, you know, as a writer, I can see, um, if you're ticking off the boxes of the theme, which is like sexual dissatisfaction or like the search for pleasure, then I can see how he would think, oh, it's a good idea to have this type of character be in it because it's Rory in the book is very much looking for her own type of, I wouldn't call it hedonism because it's not on that level, but her own type of like sexual satisfaction. Yeah. Whereas in the movie, the character of Kirsty doesn't really have that at all. Yeah. Um, she's not in pursuit of anything. She, she sort of falls into the box completely by accident, opens it by mistake, which Rory does too, but at least the, but at least Rory in the book is on that quest when she comes upon it by mistake. Whereas in the, in the movie, Kirstie is not anywhere near that ballpark and still falls on it. Now I, I, so again, I, I like the, the change and I think it's much stronger to the story, the way it is in the movie, but I can see where your instinct as, as a writer would be. I need this character to tick the boxes of the theme also. Yeah. So I can see that, but I, but again, I dig the movie a lot more. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk to you about uh, about Claire Higgins. Now, Claire Higgins played Julia. Yeah. Uh, and d- I think that she's a very well-realized character, too. I feel like, oh, yeah, in, in fact, the, both, That's a both, great women, performance. both um, women in this movie are really strong. Yeah, yeah, really great performance. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, yeah, Julia's character is fascinating. Because mm-hmm. um, I think that, like, you know, it, it's it's clear that she's in this marriage situation very much for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. And you see that even in the flashbacks where she first right. meets Frank and, um, you know, Frank has those jibes at her about marital bliss yeah. and she's, she's saying to him, she's much like, I'm too, happy. Yeah. She's much too forceful in how she says to him, how happy she is. Um, happy so, enough to sleep with Frank. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they're not, and, and she's not even married to yeah. him yet when she meets Frank. And so, um, so I think that there is something to the fact that she, you know, 
clearly is not she is clearly not getting what she needs mm-hmm. from the marriage and is sort of letting herself, you know, fall into this marriage situation. I mean, I think, you know, it's the late 80s, so, you know, there there may be more to that as far as just, like, you know, how many options women may have in, in terms of who they marry and mm-hmm. why they marry. And so, um, you know, it's clear that Larry's, you know, he's, he is, you know, sort of a, a home builder and, you know, is trying to, you know, trying to, you know, create like a good home, yeah, like a but, but yeah, but like, but is doing so in, in kind of this like fairly, you know, fairly, you know, typical American dream, right. quote unquote, type way. He's a which, nester. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, a nester. whereas Frank like represents an escape. Exactly. Like a literal um, escape. Yeah, yeah, a literal <laughs> escape. Um, so, so yeah, like Julia's character, I think, you know, she, she's, she's clearly so just like deprived of, of, of a relationship that actually is fulfilling for mm-hmm. her and not just sexually but like right. just it's emotionally it's, too yeah exactly um and uh which is why she's so easily manipulated i think because yeah. she there's like definitely a part that's missing in her yeah uh and and like like you're saying like there's not a lot of like details that we get about her backstory per se uh, apart from her relationship with frank but there's a lot of like little like subtext clues that you pick up on like yeah. like how Larry was saying that you know they're, they're moving they're from Brooklyn uh obviously she's not from Brooklyn she's from England and it's like you know well what kind of of life did she have where she was transplanted from her home and she's coming like in America and now she uh, is in this marriage and she's unhappy in this marriage and she feels kind of trapped and all that and uh, so there's like a lot there that you could really explore with her yeah. character, and it's and it's tricky and it's tricky to kind of hash out and to discuss in a way because of of the sparseness of the script. Mm-hmm. I think you know they they there's a real economy to mm-hmm. you know how how much they use their words in this movie. A lot of it is more just in in the is is in the visuals mm-hmm. and in the mood. Uh, so um yeah it, it it makes this film a, a challenging one to kind of discuss. Um But Julia's not really like she never messes with the box. So she never actually um she never interacts with the Cenobites directly, you know? No. And and so I feel like everything that she does is 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 actually more in earnest. Like Kirsty She's doing it to survive the consequences of opening the box. And Frank, he had the box experience and now he wants to escape it. Julia is the only one who's really doing it for like the most earnest reasons, which is like she's actually pursuing her own happiness. (coughs) Yeah. So uh, an interesting fact, Claire Higgins hates horror movies. Yeah. And when she saw this movie for the first time at the premiere, she had to leave after 10 minutes because it freaked her out so much. And to this day, she's never seen the entire film. Wow. Is this movie <laughs> the only horror film she was in? Or? Well, she had a she had a small part in Hellbound Part 2, which Hellbound is uh, Hellraiser Part 2. Okay. Which is actually, I think, like, the nine Hellraiser movies... 
get progressively worse, but the first two are the best ones. Hellbound is actually pretty all right, too. It's not as good as this one, and Clive Barker had nothing to do with it, but it's actually a pretty worthy sequel. Yeah. Uh, she appears in, like, flashback scenes in that one. Okay. So it's not like she's actually in that one. She's also in a movie called Small Faces, and she was in The Golden Compass, uh, which I, I liked that movie um, quite a bit. I know a lot of people didn't like it, but whatever, I liked that Golden Compass. Um, nice. So I thought that was that was fun um, that, that she's actually never seen the movie all the way through. Wow. Now, in an interview for Sam Hain Magazine, July 1987, uh, Barker mentioned some problems that the censors had with the more erotic scenes of the film. Uh, this is um, quoting him directly. Uh, he says, well, we did have a slight problem with the eroticism. I shot a much hotter flashback sequence than they would allow us to cut in. Mine was more explicit and less violent. They wanted to substitute one kind of undertow for another. I had a much more explicit sexual encounter between Frank and Julia but they said, no, let's take out the sodomy and put in the flick knife. That's uh, his quote. Hmm. Um, he's also said in, in the, the commentary for the film, he says that the seduction scene between Julie and Frank was initially a lot more um, explicit. But then like we did, they did a version where, that involved some spanking, but the um, MPAA was not very appreciative of it. And so he says that the, someone at the MPAA told him that that he was allowed to to show two consecutive buttock thrusts from Frank, but that three was deemed obscene. So in the scene in the movie, you only see him thrust twice, and, and they had to cut out the third scene to actually bring the rating down from an X to an R rating. <laughs> the fucking MPAA, I swear to God. Yeah, so many stories like that... Um yeah, it just makes about, no like, fucking these, sense. Yeah, these weird sort of like arbitrary, like oh yes, uh, three thrusts is obscene, but two <laughs> is just in that just in that artistic sweet spot. Well, like you um, look at t- take a movie like Titanic. Titanic has like a lot of death everywhere, very explicit deaths. There's also a major scene with quite a bit of nudity, even though it is like chaste nudity because it's like for, for the purposes of art, which I guess yeah, is but how, it's but it's full frontal, but it's like, full nudity. Yeah. And yet that movie is a PG 13. Yeah. And then like this, a movie like this, I feel like, I mean, obviously it's a lot of really gory. This definitely deserves an R rating. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But no for them question. to have a problem with the eroticism, I feel like. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of discussion about um about um eroticism in film that specifically depicts female pleasure mm-hmm. and um oh, yeah. and 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 while i i can't remember like uh the specific like articles that it was or i forget whether it was like an article or it might have been just like a, a, a you know a, a youtube commentary thing but um but but uh, i i remember it being shown that like you know there there are many different instances of of you know when films are getting evaluated for ratings where um where like scenes that where where like when the films kind of had to go into the re-edits in order to you know get the rating down from like nc-17 that that they had to like cut they had to you know 
they had to cut out the scenes depicting women orgasming mm-hmm. because like a scene that depicts a woman having sexual pleasure was too much for the for the rating committee um yeah there's and, definitely a a disparity there um yeah exactly um double yeah. A double standard, if yeah, you will. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there is a double standard in terms of just like how much more permissive violence is than sex. And then also when it comes to the sex, how how male sexuality is always is always deemed more appropriate than female sexuality. Now, the two movies that, that come to mind when we're talking about that issue uh, is uh, there's Blue Valentine. Uh, which is the 2010 um, drama film starring uh, Michelle Williams and Ryan Gosling. There was uh, quite a bit of controversy in that movie because it depicted a scene where Ryan Gosling goes down on Michelle Williams. um, And they wanted to give the movie an NC-17 because of that scene, even though the movie is, is not very graphic with it. Like, it does imply that it happens, but it's not, it's not like you know, you see anything. It's not like a porno or anything like that. The other instance that I, that's very prominent in my mind is Ang Lee's movie, Lust Caution, which did get an NC-17. They weren't able to fight that one. And that movie, when, if you ever watch the movie, I recommend it. It's a fucking amazing fucking movie. It's a spy thriller. And basically like the main character, she has to infiltrate and seduce uh, the man that she's spying on, yeah. and so the, during the seduction scenes, it's it's very much the same idea. Like she, we're we're seeing scenes depicting her pleasure yeah. because the movie is about her kind of you know falling for this guy that she's like spying on and all the and how it messes with her you know what her job is essentially yeah. and and that alone gave the the NC seventeen even though the movie is not very violent or sexual otherwise other than that. Yeah. It's very bizarre, the, the, the double standard. And that kind of leads us to our next segment. So we might as well just like say it in the next segment is called. Uh, that's, that's problematic. problematic. <laughs> like very much so. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, I think, yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of in this film, mm-hmm. um, a, a fair amount of, of problematic male sexuality. Yeah. You had definitely brought up, uh, the men that she brings back home. Right. Um, especially the first guy mm-hmm. with, you're not going to change your mind. Holy fuck. How terrifying yeah. was that line? Right. Um, and you used to good effect. I don't, obviously the movie is not like, Oh yeah. That in, in, a, in a good light. Oh yeah. No, the absolutely. whole, the whole film is like about basically like, again, it's about, <laughs> chasing that sexual satisfaction and the, what are the consequences of that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, so, so I guess, and, and, and I guess maybe like in a, in a broader way, um, you know, even, uh, <laughs> it, it is still a, a film that is about, um, punishment for sexual transgression in its it own is. way. Yeah. So, um, so, so maybe there is a, a question as far as whether, whether that moral stance is tenable or mm-hmm. not, or whether in, in today's, you know, age, you know, you know, I think, I think society as a whole is, is, you know, more mm-hmm. sexually liberated and more open about sexuality. In than some it's ways, been. in some ways, in <laughs> we're some so very ways. repressed in a lot um, of ways. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, Clive Barker is, 
interesting tidbit. He he's a gay man, and when you read a lot of his work, especially his early horror works, which Hellbound Heart is is amongst them. But before Hellbound Heart, he has th- this collection of short stories called the Books of Blood, and they're amazing stories. I really recommend if you're a horror fan to, to check the, check them out. Um, but a lot of the stories deal with this whole idea of of sexuality and um, and, and as it intersects with you know, pain, pleasure, the whole idea of like sadomasochism, uh, the danger of sex. And I feel that that comes from, you know, his background as a gay man in, in the culture, I guess, in Britain, like in that time when, when they were all coming up together, the AIDS um, epidemic was in full swing, full force. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of that interwoven into his works. Like, you, you know, sex is something that, that obviously you want to pursue because it's pleasurable and because as a gay man who, who who you want to embrace who you are and that's one of the ways that you embrace is by embracing your sexuality and but at the same time there's like this very dangerous and uh yeah. horrific side to it that is is like the monsters lurking yeah. behind the walls, you know. Well, and especially because it it it, it you know it, it 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 is something that you pursue in opposition to um, to societal expectation, yeah. and that's right. and you see that a lot in this movie, right? That, of about how her you know her pursuit of Frank completely flies in the face of Larry's efforts right. to, to nest and mm-hmm. make a home for them. And the sexual, um, the I'm sorry, the religious imagery also makes sense too because yeah. like the religions haven't historically not been okay with homosexuality. Yeah. And to see like, oh, what's more horrific than than giving like this danger a, yeah. a religious consent connotation, you know. Yeah. Um. To to circle back uh, as well to um to uh to uh seduce number one <laughs> right in his line. Um. Uh, the what what surprised me a little bit was that uh, we even got a little bit of that attitude from Larry himself when yeah. um when uh, she is you know pleading with Frank who is mm-hmm. right behind him right. about to fucking shiv him. Right. Um and uh and so she's saying no please don't no please yeah. don't. Um and obviously Larry thinks that she is basically saying I don't want to have sex right now and just really is not at all gracious mm-hmm. about it in that moment of just being like one minute you're all over me and the next you can't. I don't understand you. And I'm Which just that like, brings up another good point because I I've always felt like that scene, like it shows that Larry, even if he's not like as perverse in his actions, he is very much that aloof male who doesn't know what the fuck a signal is kind of guy because well, yeah, and she's scared for her life. And so he's comforting her and he equates comfort with sex. Yeah. But comfort isn't necessarily sex, but I think a lot of guys, like if, if a woman is trembling in your arms, your first thought is to go. Let's yeah. You have to you address up, that. You yeah. Know? That's a thing. Yeah. You kind of like, 
Yeah, it it it, it kind of goes back to just that, that idea of like, you know, men who will claim like rent that, you know, consent was retroactively right. withdrawn or something right. like that. When it's like, well, no, you actually like you misread the situation. You completely misread the mm-hmm. situation, had no understanding right. of of what was actually going yeah. on right in front of your face. Um and uh and yeah, and, and I think yeah, that scene does kind of also, you know, in its own way it it, it becomes like the most extreme expression of just kind of like how distant their marriage actually yeah. is mm-hmm. um and and how incompatible they really are right because um, like if, if she's screaming no 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 in your arms after she's been like terrified like why isn't your first reaction what's wrong yeah you know like yeah, how can are, i help you his yeah. reaction is to be offended that yeah. she doesn't want him in yeah. that and, and 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 also like you know a little bit of that entitlement too yeah. like he's he's expecting something mm-hmm. from her and when he doesn't get exactly what he wants then he you know he he just is really he he doesn't <laughs> yeah he 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 displays no graciousness at all about it um so when Clive Barker first showed this film to his mother, not not something that I would do if I Aww. filmed this movie. No, but mommy's so proud. But when Clive Barker first showed this film to his mother, she cried tears of joy upon seeing her son's name in the opening credits. He leaned over and whispered that that would be the happiest she would be for the next two hours. <laughs> 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 I mean, it. <laughs> look, it could have been worse. It could have been Tyler Perry's. Oh, Tyler Hell Perry's Razor. Hellraiser. <laughs> Since its release, the film has divided critics. It has generally received praise. Initial reviews ranged from Melody Maker calling it the greatest horror film made in Britain to Roger Ebert decrying it as a bankruptcy of imagination. So final way. (laughs) So final thoughts, Ned is Hellraiser a bankruptcy of imagination. Is it a bad movie? So, so movie, good movie, great movie, something in between. What do you think? Ooh, uh, it's it's somewhere between good and great for me. I found it to be quite good. Um, I think that it is very rich in ideas. Bankruptcy of imagination, I think. <laughs> I I, uh, I I think that particular review can fuck off. Um, you know, out of all respect for uh, for the late Roger Ebert. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, I mean, this film is 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 so full of just like very very interesting, very imaginative mm. um, atmosphere, and uh, the way it uh, the way it's tension and the way it's you know, oh god, it, it, it's I don't know words words fail me for, <laughs> with this film <laughs> and. But, but like, yeah, just, like, the, the sense of mood, the sense of dread, the sense of just, like, uh, you know, sexual alienation, mm-hmm. it's, it's just, it's, it's all there, it's, it's, it's really great, it's a fan, yeah, it, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the hell Mr. Ebert was talking about there, um, that kind of drives me crazy to hear that, um, what, what are your thoughts? But yeah, very good. Okay, very good. I thought it was quite good. Um, 
very fucking disturbing. Um, I, I, I am glad that I waited on that one. Um, I would have been traumatized as a child. Um, talk to me. What? Are, how are you feeling? I think it's... I, I, okay, I agree with you. I think it's a good verging on great movie. I think it's a really good movie. Yeah. Uh, again, I'm, I, has, I always hesitate to say great because I think greatness is reserved to only a select few yeah. pieces of art. Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't call this a masterpiece, <laughs> but it's really, really good. And I think that it has a lot of great imagination. It's very dark imagination, but I think there has a lot of great imagination going through this movie. Um, I, I, again, it's, it's, it's a product of a novice, a film novice, but his vision is strong enough to carry us through. There's a lot of great memorable set pieces. The creature design, as we talked about, is fantastic. Pinhead has become a, a pop culture icon for a reason. Uh, and Mr. Doug Bradley brilliantly brings him to life and gives him like the right amount of like creepy gravitas that a character like that that yeah. de- really needs to sell it. Um, the human story is what drives this movie. That's the thing that's missing from the sequels. The sequels really focus on the Cenobites, especially after the second one. But in this one is very special, and the book also because it's a, it's a human story about human monsters, and then it just happens to feature these like really really creepy. <laughs> insanely fucked up demons from yeah. another realm and I like I like the concept of cycles in, in fiction because I think that life has a lot of cycles in it I'm a very big believer in circles and cycles yeah. even in my writing I use a story circle to, to write um, and I like the circular storytelling in this how like you said it's bookended by the scene at the bazaar with the puzzle box like this is a story that's just one in countless iterations of the same story and we can see a lot of our own humanity in it and I think that this is one of those movies that really holds a mirror up to us and it's like okay how how do we go about pursuing our pleasure and at what point is it is it crossing that line and and what are the consequences thereof I hear that I absolutely hear that I agree with that yeah all right, well, that brings us to the conclusion of another episode of Gratuitous Sex and Violence. Ooh. Ned, thank you for coming on this journey with me and watching Hellraiser. Thank you for fucking my shit up. Fulfilling a <laughs> long-standing childhood promise, yeah. breaking a long-standing childhood promise, I should say, yeah, yeah. of never watching this movie. Uh, good Lord. Uh, you have indeed watched this movie. Yeah, never um, say never. I hope you join me next time for another uh, schlocky movie masterpiece of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we want to thank everyone out there for listening. We hope you guys join us next time for another exciting movie uh, when we uh, explore the depths of human depravity uh, with pop culture and discussion. Delicious. Until then, do not play with the box. No. Drop that thing and watch some movies instead. Later. Peace. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. You guys always bring me the very best violence. No relationship. No emotions. Just sex. Just. I hope we're gonna have some gratuitous sex and violence. Just. You guys.
I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. Just you guys always bring the very best violence. No relationship. No emotion. Just you guys always bring the very best violence. Just I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. Just you guys always bring the very best violence. This is Just Press Play.